Dear Trend Buckers, welcome to another episode of Bucking a Trend with me, your host, Eduardo da Costa. This week's guest is none other than Evan Longard of Freeze London. We conducted this interview late 2020, beginning 2021 in January. So some of the information may be out of date. And I'm specifically talking about the fellowships that were discussed, which were imminently going to be released, as in the free scholarships, namely, which were going to be released for the first time. There's also a few other opportunities, I'm sure, being attached to this year's Freeze London that you may look at on the website. In what ways does Ever buck the trend differently? Ever is an amazing individual, having worked in Delfina Foundation and most notably at Tiwani Contemporary, being a fulcrum for British Black artists and notwithstanding, also international artists too who associate themselves with Blackness and are of the community in that sense. Notably, working with emerging artists like Michaela Yawadan and Joy Labinjo and many others. The way in which specifically ever has bucked the trend is by being one of the first Black directors of an art fair, namely Freeze London. And Freeze London is one of the most significant especially within the UK sphere and within the European sphere of fairs, one of the most significant fairs. And I wanted to see and have a better idea behind the, let's just say, the Polish media statements in a more in-depth way, what moves and what drives ever longer. The conversation is important to me because representation matters. Moreover, it's not only just representation, it's representation by people who have talent that matters. So what will you take away from this episode? You will take away a better understanding of some of the concerns that Eva has of her own practice. We'll be delving into questions like what it is to be a woman in art, what it is to be a black woman in art, and what it is to be a person from a non-artistic sort of family, or traditionally non-artistic family, but with artistic leanings, may I say, which will elucidate your understandings of the person that is ever longer. Finally, this episode is entitled Not Closing Open Doors because of a saying, and I paraphrase, that Eva Longard's mother used as an encouragement in order to seize the day and push forward through what is one of the world's most interesting and arguably choppy environments because the art world is not an easy one to get into, let alone survive and thrive in. Firstly, I would like to welcome you, Eva Longit, to my inaugural podcast. Bucking the Trend is a podcast that I've conceived off the back of many a conversation about the glass of talent within the London art scene from a Black background, taking positions in the directorial sphere. And these conversations are really a way of inspiring the next generation, adding to the archival canon 
and creating a space for people to understand better the rise of individuals like yourself. Thanks for having me, Eduardo. Well, it's a pleasure to have you too. Um, I, I would like to start with, I, I always do this when I engage in any sort of conversation. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm Eva. I am Artistic Director of Freeze London. I'm French. I've been living in London since 2005. And um, yeah, this is, this is me. Amazing. Let's start from the beginning. So what was your upbringing like in terms of your artistic exposure? How did you come to seeing art as a viable career choice? I was an arty kid. My grandmother was a Sunday painter. We used to paint a lot together. We used to do terrible copies of works that you'd see at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Mm -hmm. um, I used to go to the museum a lot. I used to draw a lot. Um, I used to paint a lot. Um, but this wasn't really a career option until much later. I think there was some nervousness in my family around me pursuing a career in the arts, I think it's still, you know, widely seen as a risky choice, um, one that may not pay off. Um, and I think, you know, when your parents have travelled from halfway across the world in pursuit of a better life, uh, it is stressful to think that your kids might engage in a career path that may not allow them to sustain themselves. So I think... You know, I mean, the idea there is that there is no security net. So whatever careers I pursued, it would have to be one where I'd have to be successful at. So I think, yeah, there was some nervousness around that. And so for this reason, you know, I, I kind of had to start by studying um, economics and politics and get a first degree in this. And I think this was partly to appease you know, some, some nervousness in my family and... Because, I mean, you know, I think they, you know, they felt maybe more comfortable with the idea that I'd become a finance person or, you know, a, a doctor or, you know, like those kinds of professions. Um, mm. And then after that, after I, after I finished this first degree, then, you know, I think my parents felt a little bit more relaxed and then we were able to be more engaged in this idea that I would study art history and then I guess, you know, once they felt that I had something else to fall back on, then it was okay for me to pursue this. And so I did. But in reality, it wasn't until I finished my art history degree that I got a clearer sense of what type of careers were practically possible in the art world. I think, you know, a lot of this information wasn't so easily accessible for someone who didn't already have those contacts then or who didn't already have a family member who could navigate the art world. And it was also before the internet. So it's not like we had, you know, it's not like you could easily Google careers in the arts and get some information there. So it felt fairly opaque and fairly invisible. And, you know, the ways in were obscure. It's not until I actually finished my, my art history degree and... And actually through, through my art school's career department, they put me in touch with a Parisian gallerist who I started working with. And this is then, and, you know, that would have been maybe, maybe I don't know, I would have been maybe 19 or 20 at the time. This is when I actually could see for myself what working in the art would, would mean. 
Mm. You've exposed a lot of themes just there. The art world, for me, has always been something that I've encountered through galleries and exhibitions myself. And I can say that it's interesting that you say that it's a career choice that many people don't understand because they, they see it as being contingent and very difficult to sustain. But I'd like to go back into a point you made about your parents traveling across the world. If you don't mind me asking, what are your familial roots before France? So my dad is from the Congo and my mom, she's French, but she's got Italian heritage. So parts of her family came from Italy, early 20th century to work in France. And then the other side of her family immigrated from Brittany. So, so within France, but you know, there were also, I guess, strong uh, migration from Brittany to Paris for work. So, yeah. How have those two backgrounds influenced you in terms of your love, your pursuance of art? I think there was earlier on, you know, when I was studying art history in France, I think I had a strong sense that what I was looking at in books at the time that we were taught wasn't the full story. It wasn't the complete story. I knew this from my travels. I knew this from my dad's library. I knew that there were other histories of art and that these were not the ones that we were looking at in school. And so I guess there was a certain hunger to find those narratives that would be Perhaps those of people who looked more like me. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's something that I was aware of when I was studying that, you know, there were other, other histories out there and that I perhaps needed to pursue those. One of my favourite moments that I always ask people is, so your awakening, let's call it, came from your father's library. Many people sometimes become awakened to the fact that the full story of art isn't being taught as widely through now through social media. Yeah. How does this inform your practice currently? I mean, I think that's informed my entire career. It's it's the idea of representation. It's the idea of diversity. It's the idea of globalization, of globalism in the world, and of making sure that anything that I put out there is somewhat representative of the world that we live in, not just a Western view on it. I mean, and even if, you know, it's not even about Western non-West, I think even within a Western perspective, there's so many nuances there. I'm, I think it's, yeah, I'm just interested in... Finding out the nuance. Yeah. What was the first moment you kind of encountered literature or sort of an art form that made you go, wow, this is what representation can look like? You know, I'm not sure if that moment was actually an art moment for me. I think it was more, you know, my dad used to live in, in London in the 90s. He used to live in Brixton and Peckham in like 1991, 1992. And I used to come and visit as a kid. And I think at the time I wasn't that, you know, politically aware or self-conscious or what, but I did have a sense that things were different here. From then on, you know, I developed a relationship with this country. And then I kept coming to visit as I was growing up. So, you know, my first visits, I must have been 10 or something. And then at the time, it was more, you know, getting on the red bus and going to see the pink elephant and elephant and castle. And, you know, <laughs> and then as time grew by, obviously, you grow up and then you start seeing things differently. And I remember, I think maybe, you know, when I was a teenager, maybe like 16 or 17, and I was visiting here, getting this sense that, you know, there were Black people on television here. <laughs> there were Black news presenters. Mm. There were, you know, I could see much more op 
opportunities for us to be many different things that I couldn't see at the time in France. And so I think, you know, I think this is when it became clearer to me that there were opportunities here, I guess, that I could pursue that perhaps I wouldn't be able to pursue if I stayed in France. And so on the back of this, I, I enrolled with SOAS and I did my MA there in art history. And, and then, and, and, you know, from that time onwards, it was plethora of books and exhibitions and everything. Like, I can't even tell you which one was the first one, but I guess, you know, once you're enrolled in a course like this, then the door is open, really. Um, but I think for me, the for encountering London and the diversity of London than anything else, like, this is what made me realize, okay, I can probably do this. And if I do this, it will probably be here. Mm, there was a conscious decision made that London was going to be the place where you would make it. I could just see people be and do what I wanted to be and do in a way that I couldn't see in France. And I think seeing what you could be is really an important catalyst. You know, you can't you can't be what you don't see. London was much more diverse at the time. And, you know, it was... I guess, you know, the Arts Council was also really supporting diversity. There was a language around diversity, around race that we didn't have in France. We just didn't talk about race and about diversity. Mm. We, we just didn't have those conversations really at the time. So, oh, wow. Um, I would love to ask you about that and really ask you the following question. So you call yourself French because... Yeah of your upbringing I'll go on a limb to say but you've lived in London for 20 years mm. how do you square off that sort of position I mean I don't really you know I'm French and I'm black and I'm African and I'm Londoner and I'm British you know I'm, I'm all of these things I don't really square it off it's I think you know most of us is, are many different things so I, I just it's not you know it's not special the polarity do you think that the way in which France deals with race in terms of the art world. Mm. For example, the report released by, by Macron recently mm. on kind of returning African treasures mm. has been, in some cases, more progressive than the English response. Well, I think let's see what happens, no? because there's a fair amount of still, I guess, questions around what's going to happen to those artefacts. I think that's a question that needs to be addressed throughout the world. You know, it's not just a French or English position here. It's a position for all the museums who have acquired and collected works from, you know, their respective colonies. I think, you know, to go back to what I was saying earlier, I think at the time when I was growing up and when I was sort of in my formative years, I think, well, France is, it's a place of integration. This is how mostly race is talked about. So the idea there is that you kind of shed your cultural specificity and you put on your French outfit, you know, and everybody's French. Mm -hmm. We're all equal in our Frenchness. But of course, it doesn't work like that. But I think as a result, you know, it was, it's changed now. But I think as a result, it was difficult at the time to just engage in, in a conversation around race and how it may impact, you know, how we live, how we work and what we do. I think things are changing now, but I think it was culturally, it was a different space. Mm. And the, you know, the, the sort of literature and the conversation around race has tended to be more led by, you know, the US and, and later on the UK. So this is, these were the places that I was looking at for inspiration, I guess. But it, yeah, it wasn't really a sort of a French concern. Just going on to the UK context and how we sometimes refract 
our thought process via the US because mm. US is a hegemonic culture and their blackness has been exported so widely. Yeah. How do you feel that impacts the way in which we perceive art? Because the term black art can sometimes be very misleading because the US has such a large historic black population that it makes sense in that context but when yeah. when you start doing it in the UK and in other places it can become very problematic i mean i think it does make sense in the UK we have our own history here of black artists in the black art movement i think what's interesting to see is how you know those narratives those local narratives around black art whether it is black british art or afropeans are not as visible as the African-American narratives. You know, I think we still have a lot of work to do in the UK to fully acknowledge and give visibility to, you know, artists who have paved the way here in, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. I think this is happening slowly, you know, with people like Lubaina Hamid and Sonia Boyce and Claudette Johnson. But, you know, I'd like to see more of this. There's a very rich history there that I think we're still not you know, we're still not celebrating to the extent that we should. I totally agree with you. I feel like a lot of our artistic understanding of ourselves hasn't been fully reflective of what our culture looks like, especially within the art world, because the art world can be a very sort of opaque and very sort of white cube establishment if you know what I'm trying to to lead to yeah I mean I guess what I'm saying is that I think there's there's other artists there that I'm cheering for and that I want to see more of you know there's people like you know there's Rita Keegan there's Keith Piper there's you know there's we've got a lot of great artists here and great black British artists and I just would like to see more of their work you know what do you think the current state of black British art is because there's been a lot of debate since the documentary by Sonia Boyce and her academic project on archiving and keeping alive the memory of black British art which at the time sparked a, a real conversation around two years ago as to does black art in the UK exists? It's partly a generational question and I think there's some push and pull around that, you know, like it's always this sort of essentialist question, do you want to be an artist or do you want to be a black artist? And I think, you know, the positions vis-a-vis this tend to, you know, tend to shift with time. I think at the moment there's a newer generation of of younger black British artists. I'm not sure care about those labels so much, but I do know that they embrace their culture and whoever they are. I mean, you know, people like say, Michaela Yerwoodan, like, you know, Joy Labinjo, Somaya Critchlow. I think, you know, there's, there's mm-hmm. a pretty sort of exciting younger generation of artists who I think are making waves and, and really thinking about what it means to be black and British and an artist, but at the same time are quite liberated towards this. So. Yeah, I'm quite excited by this. Amazing. I sometimes ask the question to these artists, can Black artists be seen as artists first? Because of the whole system of essentialism, it does mean that you you can be lumped into a field that has no real, how can I put it? It's not entirely reflective of the work that you produce. Mm. So a question I usually ask is, can art produced by Black practitioners or Black identifying practitioners ever be seen as just sculpture, just 
painting, et cetera, et cetera, if you understand the gist of my question? Or will the sort of essentialist categorization of Blackness be always prefixed in such a taught way? I guess to an extent, I've always also wondered about this question. I wonder if it isn't a diversion somewhat. Like, mm. is this really what we need to be thinking about as Black artists and Black creatives and, and Black curators? I'm not sure. Like, I feel like this is a question that's been going for a very long time. And I'm not entirely sure this is the right question to ask, or I'm not entirely sure it's produced any, you know, interesting outcomes. So I, I'm not sure. No, I'm not. I'm not sure this is this is such a vital question to ask as an artist. I think it's more about you know what do you want to put out there. Like who do you want? To, what's what's your vision? What do you, who do you want to be as an artist? But I'm not sure. It's I don't know. I just I guess I'm voicing some frustration with a question that I've, I know has been asked for a very long time now. Yeah, it's a question that is trite in its assumption, but it's one that doesn't seem to share. I would like to go back onto sort of your journey. I'd love to ask you the following question. You mentioned that you worked with galleries in Paris before coming to London and so on and so forth. What has the part of mentoring played in your career progression? I think it hasn't been really formal mentoring. I've never had a formal mentor. But what I did have are a series of extraordinary bosses who basically trusted me when sometimes I didn't know myself what I was doing. This was certainly the case for Frédéric, who was this gallerist that I worked with in Paris. Then after this, it was the case with Lucy Davis, who is the director of 198 Gallery. This is where I had my first job as a curator in London. And I was 22 at the time. And then after this, you know, I worked with Jules Wright. I worked with Delfina as well. I worked with Maria Varnava at Tijuana Contemporary. I think these have all been incredible people to work with. I've been really lucky, actually. And so I think, you know, they've all been mentors to me, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, a formal... A formal process. Yeah. yeah. I think because it's maybe, like, in terms of thinking about, you know, outside of the people that I directly, directly worked with, there's a group of peers um, that I came to meet when I first came to this country and then after. And I think, you know, these are perhaps some mentors. Like they're people who work in the arts and we've kind of, we've had similar career trajectories. And I think I've relied a lot, a lot on, you know, advice and tips and counselling and help from them. So I think for me, maybe mentoring is more about having a community of peers also that I can rely on. I think that's been really helpful throughout the journey. Amazing. So... What is the importance of having a peer group to lean on to you? Do you think it's more important to find solidarity with, with others in the industry instead of creating or formally seeking that mentee-mentor relationship? I mean, like, I don't know. I guess it depends. For me, the formal mentor-mentee relationship didn't work. I'm not sure why. I guess maybe there's something there about... I don't know. I guess I, you know, there's something still fairly hierarchical in that in in that relationship. Mm-hmm. For me, the idea of a community of peers is somewhere where you have, you know, complete freedom and also a sort of understanding of each other's circumstances and journeys, and that really works for me. Yeah, because a community of peers is something that I've been trying to grow myself, and a word that I would use to describe that is accountability, mm. it, which is really important in terms of my artistic process because you know it's all well and good saying that you're going to produce this project but if you never 
actually mm. produce the project, it ends up, you end up doing nothing, which is a, a real problem when it comes to creativity. Alas, let's move into how you're doing currently. You have, in the last two years, taken over as Artistic Director of Freeze London. How does your current role challenge you, impact you? What I'm really trying to ask here is, what do you love about it? I love the platform. I think, you know, Freeze London, it's an important moment on the global arts calendar. It's a moment where galleries from all over the world come to London. It's a moment where institutions put wonderful shows up. It's a moment, you know, it's a moment where everyone gathers and there's talks and there's performances and it's really a high moment in the in the calendar. I think I'm really interested in in this moment as a platform. And you know, I guess the ideas, the discourses and the artistic output that we can that we can promote with this platform. Mm. I've seen recently, I think this correct me if I'm wrong, this is your sort of impermature or your imprint better put there's a shift to a more curatorial side of freeze rather than just a fair being a place where you go to sell it's i think it's always been there there's always been a very strong curatorial aspect in freeze london you know it's really important to work with guest curators on various sections of the fair. It's important to work with curators on the talks program. It's important to work with curators on the performance program. So that's that's always been there. I think maybe what you've noticed is because we were not able to do the fair in the tent this year, then maybe those curated sections were even more visible than in previous years. But it's always been there. Amazing. Um, we shall continue. What does curation mean to you? It means creating a context. It means creating a context for an artist, for an artist to work in, I guess. It means creating a context to explore and create links sometimes between also various artistic practices. I think for me, it's really about context and platforms and spaces, creating spaces for artists to make work and and to say something. Amazing. Just featuring on that say something, what has that something been for you? Because you're a person who's very politically aware and very sort of interested in our history. So saying something is, is, an, is an important part of understanding your practice. What has been that message? I think that's an interesting question. I think there's two things there. There's what I'm interested in as a, as a political beast. And then there's on the other hand, you know, understanding and wanting my output to be as diverse and free as possible because if it isn't that then somewhat I'm also creating small boxes that I put artists in you know I'm more interested in creating I guess platforms for artists to be whoever they want to be I think at the moment you know there's a lot of questions around you know and rightly so but politics and identity and I don't think I've ever wanted as a curator that my work should only be about this it's something that animates me as a person, but I also recognize that, you know, artists may or may not want to engage with this. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for artists to have the space and the freedom to engage or disengage with politics and identity however they want to. Um, isn't art a political thing from the beginning? Because once you start this, you take a basic language 
for example, I don't know, the language of the visual realm and you twist it to your own écriture. It's almost like you're writing yourself into history. What I'm really trying to ask is how do you negotiate that space? I mean, I think, you know, for me, it all comes with what specific individuals are interested in doing. You know, some projects that I've done were maybe more political in nature. And that would have been in response to what artists that I was working with at the time wanted to do. But equally, you know, some other projects that I've done were really not that. And I think, again, you know, it's about responding to what artists are, what an artist is interested in doing and sort of creating a context around their work. So, I mean, I think for me, it's really artist-led. And if it is artist-led, then it can be, it can be a lot of things. It just depends who I'm working with. You know, the, the turn of the project really depends on the artists that I might be working with. I also don't work directly with artists anymore, so I don't feel completely equipped to answer the question, but I guess I was up until recently. But I think up until recently, this is how I would have approached it. I think it would have really been... So how has your practice evolved? Because now that you said that you don't work with artists directly, so are you working with your peers more working with curators and... Yeah, at the moment, it's it's working with curators, really, and working with galleries. It's more supporting and platforming curators than directly working with artists myself. Do you find a difference between working with with an artistic practitioner like a curator and an artist? Do you find that they have a very sort of different mindset? It's totally different. It's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's completely different. Um, yeah. Mm. Different, you know, different people, different jobs, different positions in the art world. It's, yeah, it's completely different. And relations of power and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. I would like to just kind of move us into the art world before coronavirus and the art world after coronavirus. How has the art world changed in relation to coronavirus? Well, I think technology has really changed the way we work now in the art world. I think it's changed how we work as organizations, as people. I think it's changing the way we look at art. And I think, yeah, I think that would probably be the main takeaway. The main takeaway is the impact of technology. I think this was already there to an extent before COVID, but I think COVID has really accelerated the process I think one of the things that I'm interested in, I guess, in, in the advent of a, of a more technological art world is perhaps the transparency that comes with this. Mm. You know, I think technology does make things more transparent and more accessible. You can reach out to you know, much wider and much international audiences with technology. So this is something that I'm personally quite excited about. And, you know, as I said, it's it was happening. I think there already was a, fat, a fertile ground for technology in the art world. But, but there's been an acceleration yes. of late. Yeah. Mm. In terms of, like, the way that you work as a curator, you constantly be on the ground talking to galleries, talking to other curators, and now having to do that from home. How has that relationship been impacted, if at all? I think in a sense, well, I'm, you know, it's like everybody else. We, we do Zoom calls and we're still very much in touch with everyone that we're working with. I'm wondering if in a sense it hasn't been easier to speak with people actually since COVID. I think there's a sense of maybe 
availability that we didn't have before. I think maybe renewed interest in in conversations. I think it's been a different a different rhythm in in listening and speaking to one another. And I've also really enjoyed this. You know, I think we're maybe a bit less busy now, and we have more time to to listen and to talk to one another. And that's strangely been really productive as a new mode of of working. Mm. Do you feel like the current rate of conversations and talks and the rest will will be a lasting impact of, of the COVID world on the art world? Or will we go back to the frantic mm. speed of the art world juggernaut just being one event after another? I don't know. I'm really interested to see, like everybody else, you know, to see what we keep from this moment of reset. I think the question is bigger than the art world. I think it's a question about how we live. It's a question about sustainability. It's a question about the environment. It's also a question about social justice. You know, let's not forget 2020 isn't just the year of COVID. It's also the year of BLM. And yeah, that, let's talk on that. I'm really interested to see what what in, 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 in these moments we keep for the long term. And I think like everybody else, I think we deserve better than going back to normal. You know, I don't think normal was working. I'm interested I, I, I totally of- agree with you on that. Many institutions have provided or sort of created BLM statements. I think coming from the free statement, you guys have decided to create a fund or a program for a young curator. Would you like to tell me a little bit about that? So, yes. So this is a fellowship for emerging curators. So the idea is that every year we would fund two fully paid 18 months fellowships for an emerging curator to work within an institution that we partner with. Mm-hmm. This year, the partners are Kuzinval Gallery and Baltic. Um, and so we will soon start the recruitment process for these young fellows. But the idea here, there is really to think about diversity system systemically and to think about how we can support the new generation of young curators into, you know, entry level positions in the art world. Amazing. Because entry level positions for curators are, are few and far between. Yeah. What would you say are the requisites for someone who wanted to apply for such a position? Are you looking for someone who has gone through the traditional you know, university and has that background or someone who's more of a grafter who is kind of learning on, on, on the job? We're looking for someone who's talented and someone who wants to do this and someone who's interested in working with artists and who has lots of ideas that they want to put out there. But we're not, you know, I think, I mean, each job description will be crafted with the partnering institutions, but we're well aware of not limiting ourselves to, you know, young people who might have formal education. So it's unlikely that this will be a prerequisite to become a fellow. Amazing. Mm. A question that sometimes gets subsumed in the kind of intersectionality of things is being a woman in the art world. How has your being a woman impacted you positively and negatively, if at all? I think you know, being a woman in any, in any scenario is never easier. It's never easy. We're always dealing with patriarchy. We're always dealing with sexism. Being a Black woman is, you know, brings up its own set of challenges. Mm. I think within that, there is a sisterhood. 
And I have found huge amount of comfort and support and help in other women in the art world. And so I think that's also been something that's been really crucial to me being able to progress my career is actually the support of other women. Amazing. Which institutions that you work with, not picking out ugly babies, because everyone's beautiful and everyone's doing an interesting job these days, but which institutions that you're working with do you feel are doing interesting things on the diversity front, like Chisholm Hale, for example? So, I mean, yeah, so Chisholm Hale, you know, they have this, they have a great track record of showing international art, supporting British artists, um, but then they've also for many years run their own fellowship program. So I think it's always been inscribed in their DNA to also support a new generation of, of curators. And so for us, it was really important to, to work with organizations that had this sense of supporting the next generation already in their DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, the Baltic is a fantastic organization. I think, you know, it was also really important for us to partner with institutions outside of London. The Baltic is, you know, engaged in thinking around community, thinking around, you know, working outside of the white cube, extending their programs beyond the institution themselves. And I think also thinking about how to bring education and community and curatorial work together in the more seamless way, you know, how to merge all of this and sort of abolish those barriers within the curatorial realm. And I think that's something that is also really an interesting proposition and something that I feel a new generation of curators are really interested in. So, yeah, so this is... Amazing. We're in the last sort of 10 minutes of this now. I would like to turn the focus on to... Pearls of wisdom, you know, like what sort of things would you like to have been told when you were younger about the art world? Think of it like a a rookie curator's guide or rookie artist's guide to finding yourself in the art world. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice that I was given was actually, it's not about working in the art specifically, but it was my mom who said to me that I should never close down a door that's open to me. I followed this dearly as life philosophy. And I think it really works. I think I've always worked with whoever wanted to work with me, kind of found ways to collaborate with people. And I've, I've, you know, I've rarely said no to a project or an opportunity. And I think that's really something, yeah, I think there's something to say about being open and being receptive and, and being collaborative. I think it really helps someone progress in their career. Amazing. I would like to kind of, bring this conversation or better put this podcast episode to an end by just having a little bit of a recap moment so we've discussed your rise tangentially we've discussed your views on certain issues we've discussed you know what curatorial practice is and how you've come to be where you are i've really enjoyed this chat and i hope you all the best I wish the best for you too, Edwarda. This was wonderful. It's really nice to talk with you. So, trend buckers. That was Eva Longart, in her own words, in conversation with me, Edwarda Costa. As a little pre or summary of, of what we've gone through, 
just reiterating. Ever spoke of her groundings in France, the globalism that affects her worldview, having Congolese parents and Franco-Italian mother specifically and Congolese father, her father living in London, how that gave her a different sense of what it could be that she as an Afropean person could achieve, which meant that London was always going to be the place where Eva felt comfortable, you know, rising to the top of her career ladder because representation matters, which is a phrase she uses. Additionally, we discussed what it is to be a curator, what she sees her role in the industry is as a facilitator, not just a person who uses politics in a politically active way to decenter the conversation, but in order to expand the wealth of understanding of one artist's work or specifically when politics is used, it is used intentionally in her work because she studied politics originally. That was something that I found an interesting factoid. And it also speaks to the way we have very set ideas of what constitutes an art professional. You know, doing your, your undergrad and your degree or your master's degree, which is something that Eva also carried out. And she converted into art history at SOAS. So what is my call to action? I encourage you all to leave a review, to share and tag your friends on Instagram stories, on whatever other channel you may use. Subscribe to be notified of forthcoming episodes. That was Bucking the Trend with Eva Longard. I've been Eduardo da Costa. See you next time.